Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first question we have is from Priyanka and it says, Jorge is a reasonably healthy 21-year-old college student who is sedentary. He is 5'11 and weighs 175 pounds. How many grams of protein should he be consuming each day? And so this is a great question because it's causing us to kind of rely on our baseline knowledge. So I first want to kind of see what type of data points it's already giving me. So they're telling me his age, 21. Okay, perfect. Then we know that he's 5'11 and weighs 175 pounds, right? So one of the first things I'm doing there is I want to be doing his BMI just to kind of see where is he. So I have 5'11, right, which if I convert into centimeters, I first want to get it to inches. So five feet is 60 inches plus 11 inches. So he's 71 inches times 2.54 to convert into centimeters. So he's 180 centimeters or 1.8 meters. Then we take his pounds, convert it to kilograms, 175 divided by 2.2. And this tells us that we are going to be having 79.5 kilograms. In our equation, I like to just do metric because I work in metric for my job, but you can always do whatever you'd like. So remember when we're thinking about BMI, we're thinking our kilograms over our meters squared. So if we do 79.5 divided by 1.8 squared, that's going to tell me he has a BMI of 24.5. So and I'm like, okay, perfect. He's, you know, young, he's healthy, he has, you know, a BMI within range, which remember for BMI, we know clinically it's not the most helpful for the exam. They definitely do use it a lot. So it's asking us how many grams of protein would you recommend that he consume each day, right? So we want to be thinking about, okay, what do we know? He's healthy, he's sedentary, so he's not really going to need like a high protein diet. He's not an athlete or anything. So we're thinking, okay, our normal range for an adult is 0.8 to 1 grams per kg. So if I do 0.8 times 79.5, that would say about 64 grams if I rounded there. And then if I did 1, that would be about 80 grams if I rounded. So then I look at my options. So I have, okay... 45 grams, way too low. That's not in range. I have 64 grams for B. So I'm like, okay, that looks good. Then C, I have 76 and then D, 92. So here you should be thinking about, okay, well, I'm in between, right, B, which we said is 0.8. And then let's see how many grams per kilogram. If I do 76 divided by 79.5, that is about... 
0.95. So it's about, you know, kind of like one there. And so then the question comes down to, okay, what do I do? Do I do the lower end of the range or the higher end of the range? And here I would say the argument can definitely be made for the lower end of the range because he is not active. Now, right, you know, for myself, you know, in my 20s, I would probably give myself at least a one gram per kilo because I'm thinking I'm active, I walk, I work out, I need that. But for someone who's not really moving around that much, that's why I would go with the 0.8 because he's not having kind of a good amount of energy utilization. So that's kind of our rationale there. Next question is one from me, and it's what is the function of the food additives BHA and BHT in food products? And so a lot of you guys got this right. Some of you guys weren't sure, but this is to help prevent lipid oxidation. You might see this in foods like goldfish or crackers. And one of the best ways I find to kind of make sure you're learning the different types of food additives, because there's a lot out there, it's hard to know every single one they could ask on the exam, is that kind of, you know, and this is an activity you can do today, tomorrow, you know, pick up the food you have in your house and flip it over and look at the food additives in it and Google what they're for, because it's going to be a lot easier for you to say, oh, wait, this is my goldfish to help the lipid oxidation and connect it that way, than to get a lot to be having a really, really long list of them um, too. So try that activity. That's going to kind of help you to learn it. That's the way I like to teach it for my students because it can definitely get very confusing. Next question we have is one from Meredith. And she's saying, which statement best describes the A components of PDCA performance improvement model? So before I look at the questions, I'm thinking, okay, what do I know about PDCA? And sometimes it's called PDSCA, same thing. So the first one is plan. So I need to kind of be like, well, what's the issue? And remember, this topic is quality improvement. So I'm thinking, okay, what's the issue? You know, what's going on? You know, then I'm going to, you know, once I pick, so like, let me say it's like the temperature on the tray line is off. That's the problem. You know, that, so I'm going to plan, okay, I'm going to look at a program to help, you know, improve tray time temperatures. So maybe I'm going to say, okay, after the tray cart has been out for 10 minutes, it has to go to the floor. So that's my plan. The D is do. I'm going to actually do it. So I'm going to trial this and say, okay, at 10 minutes, timer goes off, bring it to the floor. 10 minutes, timer goes off, bring it to the floor. Then the S and this is either study S or C check is when I'm looking at my data and I'm like, okay, what did, what did it say? What's going on? And I kind of process that, look, did it work? Did it not work? And then A is my act. So either I implement it and I say, wow, that system helped improve temperature control by 10%. Or I say that really didn't do anything and kind of restart the cycle. So, Thinking of that, and remember, with the topics on the exam, when you can think of an example and explain it through, you know it, and it's going to be a lot easier to identify. Because if you're not able to kind of walk yourself through with that example, when you get to the answer options, it's going to be really easy to go, is that one right? I don't know. Maybe that one's right. So don't hesitate to kind of think about it, an example, and then dive into the question. 
So with that in mind, here are the answer options. So we have A, determine how changes will be made. So that one, right, is more of our plan, right? That's me saying, well, how should I, you know, plan? What's the problem? B is implement the intervention. So, right, that one is, you know, kind of saying, you know, do it. We're doing the intervention. C is determine the impact of the intervention. So that's my study or check, right? What's going on? And then D, maintain and, and continue the improvement. So that would more be our act. So here, the best answer would be D because the A is the act. It's after I say, let this work. Because remember, you did it in D, right? Do. You already did the intervention. So then in study, we're saying, did it work? And then A, we're saying, okay, keep it or throw it out. So let's keep doing it. So, and this one too, a lot of people, you know, were confused. A lot of people were thinking that it was C. And remember, C is determine the impact of the intervention. That's studying. So that's me studying, saying, is it going to work? What's going on there? Two. So again, you want to think of your example. Think of that tray line example when you're doing it. Or, you know, you can always be doing your own examples too. Okay. Next question, we had a question from Shannon. So this is exactly how I want you guys to use the page post. You know, your question, she was saying, can someone help explain this? I've never heard of this before. I'm confused about this. So this one is, is a weird one. And I would definitely categorize it as like just the random types of questions you can get on the exam. We're almost, the goal is for you to be like, oh, what is this? And then you're paused, you're knocked off your game, and then it's going to cause you to get it wrong. So this one is saying a breathitarianism, and yes, right, like breathe. It's breathitarianism. Or the ability to eat, to exist only on um, piranha or vital life force without taking in food or water is an example of what? So again, you're reading this. And even when I saw this question, I was like, what? I mean, I have a lot of patients working on oncology who do crazy stuff. They're like, I'm doing a three-week fast or whatever. But this is a new one, right? And so it's saying, you know, what it like what would this correctly be categorized on? And this would definitely be considered a fad diet because a fad diet, what you're thinking of here, is this is just anything that's kind of like really, really wonky, especially not based, not really based in science, you know, one where you know people are doing extremes too. So most commonly when we're thinking about fad diets, like you're thinking like Atkins, keto, intermittent fasting too. But you want to think of them as they're like kind of extremes. So like this, just like, oh, I'm only going to survive, which like plot twist, you're not going to just survive on your vital life force. But this would definitely be considered a fad diet. So if you're getting a question like this and you're like, oh my God, this is a new word I haven't seen before. Don't freak out, right? But what you should do, of course, is ask the question on the page so we can talk about. But the best way to make sure you're using your questions too, especially in pocket prep where it's really easy to just be like, boom, 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 boom. I went through 50 today, Dana. But what I want you to be doing, and if I was doing this question, I'd be going, okay, I got this wrong. 
let me Google this. Like, what is, you know, what is this term? And Googling it, kind of looking a little bit more, reading the explanation. This is why I love pocket prep. The explanations are wonderful too. And kind of working to understand, well, why did you get it wrong? Look at the other options, look at the definitions too. So that every time you're leaving the question, you've kind of had a little bit of a review about it too. So that's going to help you too to kind of make sure you're getting you're getting the most out the most out of every question too. Okay, next question we have is which of the following is a fat source in an element um, an elemental nutrition support formula? So before I even look at the questions, I want to be thinking, okay, well, what is an elemental hydrolyzed formula? So right, we're thinking, okay, with my formulas, I have polymetric, which think things are poly. These are kind of the chains. I have also my semi-elemental where some things are broken down, right? So you might have some things broken down into tri, tri dipeptides. You might have some of the um, fibers broken down into di, um, di and monosaccharides too, but it's not all the way broken down. And so in elemental, this is going to be the easiest to absorb. Things are broken down like to the amino acid, to the fatty acid, to um, the monosaccharide. So then I look at this and I'm saying, okay, medium chain triglycerides, soy lecithin, we have sunflower oil and very long chain fatty acid, um, triglycerides. And something to remember, especially with the biochem section, is I don't need you guys to be biochem. Now, of course, if you really, really hate biochem, definitely check out my biochem recorded course because that will give you a great background. But remember, on a lot of these questions, if you're reading it carefully, you can use your context clues, right? So I'm saying, okay, elemental, that's going to be it chopped up into kind of the smallest pieces possible. So even if you're looking at this question, you're like, um, Dana, I'm not sure. You know that very long triglyceride is a huge component. There's absolutely no way that this is going to be easy to absorb elemental. So then cross it out. Soy lecithin, a lot of people click this one because they're like, ooh, like I've seen that before. What did I say before? Remember, that's your emulsifier. This is not your fat source in anything. So cross it out. So then that's leaving you between safflower oil and MCT, right? Medium chain triglycerides, MCT. And, you know, and if you're like, okay, safflower oil, that seems familiar, right? Seems familiar because it's the most polyunsaturated. That's why it seems familiar. And so that is not the answer either. The answer is MCT. And you want to make sure you understand why. Because, again, when you're doing the practice questions, if you don't understand the why, you shouldn't leave the question yet. You know, that's when, again, ask it on the page. But don't leave the question until you understand the the why, if you're just going through your practice questions, blowing through them, you're not actually preparing for the exam, which is why it's important to come to classes like this. So the MCTs, they're not fatty acids, right? But they are considered, right, for an elemental formula because they are so easy for your body to absorb. Now, the MCTs are going to be between 6 and 12 carbons. In that specific length, means that we do not need bile or lipase to emulsify them and break them down. They're actually, like to the epithelial cells, water-soluble, so they can actually 
flip through that epithelial cells directly into the blood. Remember, with bigger fat molecules, we need the bile to help emulsify. Lipase is going to break it down. Then they have to get packaged into the micelles. Remember, micelles start the mission. Then they're going into the enterocyte. They're becoming chylomicrons. Chylomicrons complete the mission. Then they're going into the lymph. And then later on to the blood. So it's like a very long commute. So if I'm able to do MCT oil, it actually allows me to bypass that whole needing bile and lipase and lymph and everything else and allows me to absorb them really easily. So you're going to see adult formula, baby formula for people with malabsorption be very high in MCTs because it's you're able to absorb it very, very easily. If you have a patient who typically has sciatoria when they eat fat, they shouldn't have it if their main source is going to be, um, if their main source is going to be the MCTs. Next question we have is how long should parental nutrition be withheld in a well-nourished patient in the ICU who's classified as NPO and enteral intake is not feasible? So here we have a few options. All of them coming to sound good. 72 hours, 7 days, 10 days, 24 hours. And a lot of people with this one are tempted to pick 24 hours because they're like, oh my God, they're in the ICU. They definitely need to be fed. And yes, we absolutely love to feed our patients the ICU. But what this question is really asking you more is can you think about the Aspen guidelines? Remember, Aspen is the American Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. And so you want to be thinking, okay, well, what do they say? When should I feed the patient? So the key here is you want to be thinking about what is the baseline nutritional status of the patient. Now here, we know they're well-nourished. So the Aspen guidelines are 7 to 10 days for them. Because you're thinking, right, so like this is me, healthy person, I have, right, fat stores, I have muscle stores, I, stores I'm going to be okay for 7 to 10 days if you're like, okay, well, maybe she's going to go to surgery, maybe she'll be able to eat, we don't know what's happening quite yet. But, right, in the, once we hit that 7 to day, 10 day threshold, you're going to say, yeah, Dana needs to eat something or get too fed or TPM. But... Here we have both the options for seven days and 10 days, which might lead you to go, well, you know, shouldn't it be both? Like, couldn't it be both? How would I pick one? And you want to think which one's the best answer. The best answer is to start talking about it on that lowest threshold day, seven. Say, ooh, Dana's got to get fed. So seven would be the best answer here. 24 hours would be if you're severely malnourished. 72, so that three to five day would be mild malnutrition or risk for malnutrition. But if you're well-nourished, you can go a little bit of time. And something really scary that I see all the time is a lot of time, especially in my patients in oncology, this is not followed at all. And I have patients who are going weeks when they should be getting some sort of nutrition support. There's always a lot of pushback of nutrition support. Sometimes people think it's too aggressive Sometimes people don't understand that it's so critical for our patients and it's actually going to help them. So that's a huge role of the dietitian is really doing a lot of that advocacy. Now this next question would 
fall into what I consider is a fact-based question, which is one you probably wouldn't know until you get it wrong and then read the answer. So here the question says, for all classes of obesity, the goal of enteral feeding in the ICU should be blank of the target energy expenditure by indirect calorimetry. So this is saying, okay, my obese ICU patients, thinking about what you know, you should have in your head that it's the 11 to 14 calories per kg for these patients. Because remember, when we're dealing with obese, critically ill patients, we want to do hypocaloric feeding with adequate protein. So the goal here is that we're maintaining their lean body mass while having fat loss. We can't put these patients on a quote-unquote nutrition holiday because if you are obese in ICU, you're not going to break down fat first, you're going to break down protein. So giving them a high protein diet is going to help maintain their body muscle mass while helping them lose their fat mass. So you're like, perfect, 11 to 14. Dana, the options here though are 50 to 55%, 55% to 65%, 65% to 75%, 70% to 80%. Because this is using indirect calorimetry, which is exactly measuring your actual calorie and protein needs. And if you're not familiar with indirect calorimetry, definitely take a pause and do a little Google of it. But to kind of describe it, it'll, your patient, and they can be in the ICU, they can be regular patients. I, a few times a month, even go in and I run indirect calorimetry tests on patients at the hospital, which I think is really fun. I'll take a picture for you guys and put it on the Facebook page one time. But so you have them lying down and then you're having them put, it almost looks like an astronaut helmet over their head. And then the machine is measuring how much oxygen they're consuming in CO2 they're producing. So it's really nice for me and my patients because I can do right calorie per kg or Mifflin St. Joran there. And then I can compare that to their exact calorie needs with the indirect calorimetry. So the indirect calorimetry is more accurate because it's actually measuring what you need. So if I have their measured amount and, I, and I'm enterally feeding them and I want to do that hypocaloric feeding, I would actually feed them 65 to 70% of um, their indirect calorimetry. Because again, I want to do hypocaloric but adequate protein feeds for my obese ICU patients. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.